Our scripture reading today is from Hebrews chapter 9, verses 1 through 22. The author writes, Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship in an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna, an Aaron's staff that budded, and the tables of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties. But it Into the second only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened, as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for our present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once and for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop, and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. So now our Father and our God. Together, your people pray that you would teach us from your word. Together, your people pray that you would draw us close to you, that you would pour out your grace and your mercy and your ministry and your healing and your work over us. Together, we pray that this day we would be renewed and restored and brought close to Christ and find joy in him. Today, we pray that in the truth of the gospel of Jesus, we might find life and peace. Lord, this is our prayer today. 
In short, we're praying that every person here would leave here captivated with Jesus and following after him in faith. So Father, whatever work it is that needs to be done in us and through us and for us and to us, we pray that you would do it. And I pray that you would allow me to be a servant of that purpose. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You guys may be seated. If you haven't already, please take your Bibles and turn to the book of Hebrews chapter 9. Uh, here at Redeemer, we're working our way through the book of Hebrews. And so um, today we come to chapter 9. And we, we come to a point in the book of Hebrews um, where the author is really camped out on one topic. And this is the topic. That the work that Jesus came to do, he calls it the new covenant, is far better, far more glorious, far more eternal, and far more life-changing than anything the old covenant, that is, the Old Testament, the law of Moses, could ever accomplish. So the author of Hebrews is, is fixated on this point. And what he's going to do for chapter 9 and chapter 10 is he's going to just keep revisiting the point over and over to, to highlight different details and different nuances of what Christ has accomplished with his life and his death and his resurrection. Okay. So, I want to actually start with an illustration to see if I can help you understand what's going on here. Uh, and then we'll, we'll see if we can navigate it together. So how many of you here, um, this is a participatory question, how many of you here enjoy visiting art museums? Okay. Yeah. So what that means, how many of you keep your hands up? What that means is if you don't like art museums, you don't want to go with these people. Because there's only two types of people when it comes to art museums. The people that see all the detail and see all the nuance and understand all the beauty and understand all the magnificence and they want to spend 30 minutes in front of every work of art. Right? And the rest of us that don't see all that, we just walk in the room and we go, 18 pictures. <laughs> Next room? Right? Right? That at least deserves an amen, right? Okay, so all of you who didn't raise your hand, I'm going to assume then that you love sport. Okay? So here's the thing. That's how they all feel about sport too, right? Like, like they look at sport and they go, why do sweaty men want to bump into each other and brutalize one another and just show who's like the manliest man? To which we would all respond and go, no, you don't see what's going on. There's strategy and there's nuance and there's competition. And when he does this, I respond with this. But he saw that coming and so he responded with that. But you got to love it to understand the nuance. And so those of us that get the nuance, we're like, let the games begin. And those who don't are like, when is this going to be over? All right, you all with me? Okay, this is what's going on in chapter 9 and 10 of Hebrews. Is the author is the guy who gets art. He's the guy who gets sport. He's the guy who gets all the nuance and all the detail and has seen the beauty and he wants you to see it. He wants you to tread through the depths of the truth to say that is amazing. 
So I hope that last week when we were in chapter 8 and I said Jesus is the bringer of a better covenant based on better promises that last forever, your heart and your soul said amen. Now what I hope happens in chapter 9 is you go, oh, that amen is an amazing amen. Like I just want to let it resound because that's what's going to happen in chapter 9 and in the latter half of chapter 9 and in chapter 10 is there's just wave upon wave upon wave of nuanced, detailed truth that shouts Jesus is the bringer of the better salvation. Jesus is the bringer of the eternal salvation. And I pray that all of us would leave here going, I need more Jesus. But he's enough. I need more Jesus, but he's enough. So, what chapter 9 says is really what chapter 8 said. And by the way, if you're new to Redeemer, I'm going to give you all of it right now. And then if you don't want to listen, you don't have to. If you want to be that guy that hates art museums, that's fine. Okay. The blood of Jesus Christ accomplishes eternal realities that the blood of animals and the work of human priests never could. The blood of Jesus Christ accomplishes eternal realities that the blood of animals and the work of human priests could never accomplish. So let's wade through these things together. So if you're a note taker, the first point is blood and the covenant. Blood and the covenant. And so what happens really in verses 1 through 22 is the author is going to lay out a lot of nuanced detail about the old covenant. So let's define some terms here. Old covenant equals Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, those books in the Old Testament, equals the law of Moses, equals the the life of Judaism that predated Jesus. New covenant equals Jesus. What he accomplished in his life, death, and resurrection. And the church that carries his name forward. Now, last week there was this radical declaration that the new covenant's better, because it is. That the old covenant could never accomplish salvation in an eternal sense, because it couldn't. And that Jesus is the answer to all of those things, because he is. But there's a potential misstep that we could make coming out of chapter 8 of Hebrews, which would be, and this would be a misstep, a wrong step. We could take a wrong step and say, therefore, the Old Testament doesn't matter. Therefore, the Old Covenant doesn't matter. Do not take that misstep. Don't take it, because that's not where we're headed. Because the Old Covenant is the foundation upon which the truth of Jesus is built. The Old Covenant shows us who God is. It shows us what God expects. It shows us the problem with the world. It shows us how God wants to be worshipped. It shows us that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. It shows us that we need a Redeemer who is to come. And Jesus and the Gospels only make sense standing on the foundation of the Old Testament. And the God who, who said, 
I hate sin in the Old Testament, hate sin in the New Testament. And the God who said, I demand holiness in the Old Testament, demands holiness in the New Testament. And the God who says it matters how I'm worshipped in the Old Testament, says it matters how I'm worshipped in the New Testament. God hasn't changed. What's changed is how much revelation we have and how much truth we have and how much we're able to understand and how much gracious of a gift it is to live on this side of the cross. So it would be a misstep to say the Old Covenant doesn't matter. It would also be a misstep to say that Jesus isn't drastically better. And so today, what I want us to do is understand how Jesus is the fulfillment of everything that God has been doing since the foundation of the world. So, what this passage is going to do is it's actually going to spend a lot of time talking about the Old Covenant. It's going to talk about tents. It's going to talk about holy places and priests who could go into the holy place. And it's going to talk about a second curtain, the most holy place, and the high priest, one person who was only allowed to go into there one time a year. And it's going to talk about killing animals and sacrifices. And there's going to be a lot of detail in chapter 9 of Hebrews about the Old Covenant. And that's just the tip of the iceberg. So much so in verse 5, he says, of these things we can't even now speak in detail. There's so much more detail there. But it all pointed to Jesus. So the Old Covenant matters. The Old Covenant is important. And it prepares for Jesus. It's the light that shines upon Him and says He is the answer. So the Old Covenant teaches us many things, but Hebrews chapter 9 is going to focus on three things we learn from the Old Covenant that point us to Jesus and through which we see Jesus is the answer. So I'm going to give you those three things and then we'll take them in turn. Number one, the Old Covenant shows us that worship matters to God. The Old Covenant shows us that worship matters to God. We'll come back and define those terms. Second, the Old Covenant shows us that holiness matters to God. Holiness matters to God. And third, the Old Covenant shows us that the shedding of blood is necessary for the forgiveness of sin. The Old Covenant shows us that the shedding of blood is necessary for the forgiveness of sin. Worship matters to God. Holiness matters to God. The shedding of blood is necessary for the forgiveness of sin. Now, we could read all 22 verses again, but Spencer's already done that very well for us once, so I'm not going to make you listen to me um, botch it. So we can actually look at two verses that really highlight this. Look at verse 1. Chapter 9, verse 1. Now, even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. Four, and then he's going to go into great detail about that covenant, which shows that God cares deeply about how God is worshipped and God cares deeply about the holiness of His people. And then you can go all the way down to verse 22. Indeed, under the law, almost is everything purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And so we could look at every, all 22 verses, or we can look at these two, which say to us, for our focus today, 
The old covenant shows us that worship matters to God, holiness matters to God, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Now let's look at those kind of in turn. First, worship matters to God. What we learn from the old covenant, again, if you, have, if you want something fun to do this afternoon, go read Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Just read all four of them. And focus on the great detail that God lays out for how He is to be worshipped. You just get the tip of the iceberg here. Build a tent. And as you prepare it, there are to be sections. The first section is called the holy place. And it gets the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. And then there's a second section. And in the second section, it's called the most holy place. And it gets the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant, covered on all sides with gold, and the golden urn holding the manna, and Aaron's staff that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. And above it will be the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. And then when it's time to worship, the priest will regularly enter into the first section performing ritual duties. But the second section, only the high priest can go. And that's once a year. And that's taking blood with him for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. What we see, again, this is just the tip of the iceberg, but what we see is God cares how God is worshipped. It matters to God how God is approached, how God is praised, and how God is worshipped. Now I know I'm sparking a conversation today that many of you want me to just camp out in and say, what does that mean for modern Christians in the here and now? And we don't have time for that today. But the philosophical commitment that the Old Covenant gives us upon which we stand is God cares how God is worshipped. It is up to God to decide what is acceptable in His presence and what is not acceptable in His presence. Now, there's some good conversations we can have about that, but I think the philosophical commitment that we carry in our New Covenant community is God decides what is right for God's worship. The Old Covenant brings this point resoundingly forward to us. Which ties directly into the second point. Holiness matters to God. The problem with people approaching God in worship was not God, it was the people. They were, by definition, rebels against God. They were, by definition, sinful in heart. They were, by definition, unholy. Holy simply means set apart for God's glory, God's honor, and God's good purposes. And God, who is Himself holy, who is Himself pure, who is Himself just, who is Himself righteous, cannot welcome unholiness into His presence because unholiness cannot stand in the presence of God. The reality of the Bible is that when unholy comes racing into the presence of God, 
the humans are always the one on the short end of that engagement. Holiness matters to God. Again, so we can go back and read, set up the, the, the tent in this particular way. The purpose of the, the holy place and the most holy place was not so God could push people away from Him, but so God could not destroy people as they sinfully come into His presence. It was actually a gracious thing that there was a curtain. It was not to inhibit our, our moral freedoms. The curtain was a gift. And all the details and the the shedding of blood and the sacrifices for sin and the the lighting of the incense and the, the, the pouring of the blood upon the altar, all of that was a way for God to display to God's people that their holiness, their purity, their lives devoted to Him mattered greatly to Him. God has come to build a people for His name. Now you might be sitting there going, okay Jamie, why do you belabor this? Because I don't think that the biggest barrier to Christianity is our belief in the divinity of Jesus. And I don't think that the biggest barrier to Christianity is our belief that Jesus died on a cross bearing the wrath of God to take away our sin. I think the biggest barrier to Christianity is our statement that people sin. I think the biggest barrier to Christianity is the statement that we can't do what we want, when we want, how we want, and create a God who accepts it. And that's not southern evangelicals trying to control people. That's what God has always revealed Himself to be. A holy God who created a people to represent His holiness to the world. And those people have rebelled against Him and are failing to do what they were created to do and that matters deeply to God. The Old Covenant makes it clear to us that holiness matters to God. Third, the Old Covenant makes it clear that without the shedding of blood there is no forgiveness of sin. I mean, like, just think about this. If it wouldn't have been for the animal sacrifices, it would have made no sense for Jesus to show up and say, Behold, I'm the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. What God instilled in His creation from the very beginning was the idea that His mercy and His grace flow to His people through the shedding of blood. We can go all the way back to the Garden of Eden. So if you're new to the Bible, that's Genesis 1, 2, and 3. The first man and the first woman were created for for God's purposes to live in God's place, at God's time, to walk in communion with God. And they rebelled against God. And God had said to them, if you eat of the fruit of the tree, you will die. And it would have been perfectly holy and just of God to say, you ate, this is over, it is finished. But instead, he showed mercy, he showed grace. But you know what he did? He killed an animal and he clothed them in the skin of the animal. And so the scriptures are an unfolding story that God's mercy and God's grace and God's forgiveness flow through the shedding of blood. 
And so, lest you think I'm making all of that up, look with me at chapter 9, verse 7. Into the second, behind the second curtain, the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and the unintentional sins of the people. Verse 13. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of the heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh. And then verse 18. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people. He took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. And so what we are told in Hebrews 9 is that the Old Covenant shows us that God desires to be worshipped in the right way. That the problem of our worshipping God in the right way is the absence of our holiness which matters to God. And that the provision for dealing with our sin comes through the shedding of blood. The Old Covenant has set this And yet, it was never able to accomplish what it pointed toward. Chapter 9, verse 9 says, According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. So this old covenant shows us the holiness of God, the desire of God to be worshipped, the sinfulness of humanity, the need for forgiveness, and the fact that this forgiveness will flow through the shedding of blood. So the people of God for generations and millennia wrestled with, how long, O Lord, until we know the one who is to come? The whole arrangement doesn't cleanse the conscience of the worshiper. Access into the presence of God is limited. Our sinfulness is a problem. When will this be dealt with? To which the author of Hebrews wants to shout a resounding answer. Jesus came. Jesus lived. Jesus died. Jesus rose again. The solution has been given. This comes to the second point then. The blood of Jesus. The answer to all these questions of the Old Covenant is Jesus Christ. So verse 11 says, But when Christ appeared, He appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come. And He entered not the human second curtain, but He entered once for all into the holy place. And He didn't enter the holy place by the blood of goats and calves, but He entered by His own blood. His own blood. 
through which He offered Himself without blemish to God to purify our consciences from dead works to serve the living God. What this passage says is Jesus is the answer to all the questions of the Old Covenant. How do we worship God rightly through Jesus? How do we stand holy before God through Jesus? How do we have our sins forgiven through the blood of Jesus? What this passage is saying is that the blood of Jesus is better than the blood of goats and bulls. And because the blood of Jesus is better, He Himself is the better sacrifice. And because He Himself is the better sacrifice, He Himself is the better high priest who offers the better covenant. So how is the new covenant greater than the old? Because Jesus gave His life as the better sacrifice to purchase eternal forgiveness, eternal acceptance, eternal holiness, and eternal presence in the Father's Eternal place in the Father's family and in His presence. Jesus is the answer to all the questions of the Old Covenant. Look at verse 15. Therefore, He is the mediator of a new covenant. So that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. What this passage says is, okay, the old covenant taught us that without the shedding of blood there is no forgiveness of sins. Therefore, the blood of animals was shed over and over and over again because sin continued over and over and over again. But what this passage says is Jesus offered a sacrifice that was better. He offered His own blood, which once and for all took away the stain of sin and brought forgiveness that lasts forever. Now think about that. Jesus' blood brings forgiveness that lasts forever. So not only does Jesus' blood take away the stain of sin, but we're told in verse 14 that it purifies our conscience from dead works to serve the living God, which means that Jesus' blood makes us holy like Jesus was. When you look at your life, you probably don't see pure, acceptable, right Glorious to God, unstained. But what we're told is that by the blood of Jesus, we stand before God pure, accepted, alive, and able to serve the living God because Jesus makes us holy. And because Jesus' blood covers our sin and because Jesus makes us holy, holy, we are able to worship God rightly and stand in the presence of God. He's entered the holy place for us. He's torn down the curtains for us. And it's by His blood and through Him that we are able to worship God in a way that is acceptable to God. So if the Old Covenant said, worship matters, 
holiness matters and the shedding of blood is necessary for the forgiveness of sins, then what the work and the life of Jesus said is, I bring all these threads together for you. I cover your sin. I give you my holiness. And I bring you into the presence of the Father where you're called to serve Him and love Him and honor Him and glorify Him and bear fruit for Him. Jesus does all of this for us. Therefore, I don't have to do anything to take away my sin. Jesus did it. I don't have to do anything to prove that I'm holy. Jesus makes me holy. I don't have to do anything. I don't have to do anything to make God accept my worship. God accepts it because of Jesus. My prayers are answered because of Jesus. This passage is shining a massive spotlight on the blood of Christ is the better offering that accomplishes everything that we could ever need. Therefore, I don't have to, if I'm in Christ, I don't have to perform to prove that I am acceptable to God. I don't have to perform to make God love me. I don't have to perform to convince others that God loves me. If I'm in Christ, God welcomes me, accepts me, loves me, sees me as holy like He sees His Son and has forgiven all of my sins. So Christians... I invite you to believe this at a depth that not just changes your words, but changes your thoughts, changes your psyche, changes all of who we are to say, if Christ has worked this thoroughly for us, I will trust Him. And as Austin said earlier, if you're here today and you are kind of considering Christianity, considering Jesus, considering the faith, and wondering what all this might have to do with you. Here's the simplest reality that I can offer you. Every person ever created will either stand before God in Christ or before God in themselves. Every human will either stand before God in Christ or in themselves. So what I'm saying is either I'll stand before God in Christ or I'll stand before God in Jamie. And if you've been at my house this week, you don't want to stand before God in Jamie. I'll just promise you that. And I'm not trying to be faux humble. Like sin's real. Brokenness is real. Hurtful words and hurtful actions are real. But what this passage, what Hebrews 9 says to me, is the blood of Jesus took away the sting of all of that. And the life of Jesus is, covers all of that. And, and God loves me as if I were Jesus. That's why the new covenant's greater. The old covenant never could accomplish any of that. 
So I just wonder how many of we Christians say with our lips, I belong to Jesus, but we live like we stand in us. Let's stop it. Let's stop it. I would be so bold. Is Megan in here? Okay, Megan's not in here. Okay. I would be so bold as to say, Megan's our kids director. It all makes sense in just a minute. That if you're working with kids to placate your conscience and feel more loved by Jesus, you ought to just stop because Jesus' love doesn't flow through our performance. And then you can repent and you can go back to working. Like that part was a joke. If you're on the worship team, they're all standing in the back being like, dude, you know what time it is? I got you, okay? But if you're on the worship team because you think that in so doing, you'll kind of take away the ugliness and feel more holy and have a, a, a better relationship with God and make God love you more, don't even come back up here and play because that's an offense to Jesus. He died because you knew He couldn't. But come and celebrate what He's done. So, Worship team, you guys are now free. Come. If you're going to come. <laughs> what would you done, Sarah, if you just stayed there? Be like, dude, I, I'm repenting. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, there's two ways to respond today. If you're a Christian, we're going to invite you to take the Lord's Supper with us. This is a meal we take each week. It's a piece of bread symbolizing the body of Jesus. It's a cup of juice symbolizing the blood of Jesus. And we take this, what we say is, I stand in Christ. I want to stand in Christ and I do so with confidence and hope and joy. And I don't have to walk around with my metaphorical tail stuck between my legs because God sees Christ in me. Take the bread, take the cup and worship. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, it's going to sound weird. Don't take the bread and the cup. Don't take the bread and the cup. Because the bread and cup is a celebration of what God's done. I don't want you to settle for a little bread and a little juice and a couple hundred calories. I want you to get Jesus. And then when you have Jesus, celebrate with us. So if you let the bread and the cup pass today, think of Jesus. Think of what he's done for you. And I would love to talk to you after the service and help you process what that might look like for you. So we're going to sing. These guys are going to pass out the bread and the cup. I'll come back in a few minutes. We'll take them together.